So it's true, we're going to talk about dukkha tonight, and I was um, given the opportunity to speak in this series, and Shaila asked me which one I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to do dukkha. (laughs) So that says something about me, maybe. Um, But I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak in this series about the three marks of existence, the three characteristics of experience the three gateways to liberation, they're all the same thing because they're so fundamental to this practice, this path, and they're uh, the primary descriptors of the goal of the path um, from the earliest teachings of the Buddha. So later you get a lot of techniques and stories and descriptions, but the earliest way that the Buddha talked about how you move toward understanding the goal of his practice is to notice these three characteristics of existence, which you're hearing about in this series. So this is really the heart of the teachings in some sense. So what is dukkha? Um, The most common translation that you'll hear, as Christy mentioned, is suffering. Uh, This isn't actually a very good choice. So we'll see that as we go along. Um, I've also heard unsatisfactoriness, which I think is a better option. One teacher uses simply stress, which I kind of like. And I've even heard struggle as one aspect of it. Um, And all of these are good, but I, I hope one thing that you'll discover is that this is actually a familiar, direct experience in your life, and therefore you don't really need a word for it, except dukkha. So this isn't really going to be a linguistics lesson, but more an exploration of what this quality is, how we relate to it, and how we can learn more about it, and maybe why we would want to learn more about it, because some people naturally have the idea that they might not want to know about these things. It's not actually a very depressing thing to focus on. Um, The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering together, They're intimately linked, in fact. And so I hope one thing that you'll get from this talk is an appreciation of the Buddhist focus on dukkha because it's not necessarily something that's focused on in other religions, other paths. It is a somewhat distinctive feature. I'll also talk a little bit about what dukkha isn't since people tend to have some misconceptions in this area. So the Buddha actually gives a clear definition of dukkha. It's said in many places in the suttas, very classic. Here it is. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. That's pretty straightforward. So first, there's the, there's the blatant kind of suffering that we know. There's pain, um, sorrow, lamentation, grief, these kinds of things. This is pretty clear and immediate. I think we've all experienced that. And then he branches into a little bit more psychological things, association with the unloved. What does that mean? Well, it means that you can't always work with the people that you like. And more profoundly, it means that the people that you know and are attached to are going to die during your life. Some, some of that will happen. And then separation from the loved. Um, oh, that's, that's this one. So people that you know are going to 
pass away. Separation from the loved is also things that you care about, your, maybe your house, maybe your health, things like that are not totally under your control. So we know about all these things. They actually drive most of what we do in life, is that we want to get more of the pleasant and less of the unpleasant. This is a common strategy. So it, does, it drives our general tendency to seek sensual pleasure, to want to become something, you know, so to want to gain status or security in some way through being, becoming. And on the flip side, it, it um, also drives our desire to escape, so um, to not be something. So Andy Olensky has a nice quote about this. He says, Conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcoming of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament, namely that unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. So, tell it like it is. Um, Life is unsatisfactory when it is lived in the ordinary mode of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. So the Buddha doesn't say it's unsatisfactory across the board, that's it, you're screwed. He says when you have this strategy of trying to get what you want and not get what you don't want, that's the recipe for unsatisfactoriness. We feel a constant sense of lack being unfulfilled, needing something, being insecure, or just being kind of off. You know, the actual linguistic definition of the word dukkha is an axle that doesn't fit correctly in the hole. (laughs) That's what it means. And so, you know, and do you ever feel this in your life? It's like it's just not quite going, and I can't get them all to go in the same direction at the same time. You know, that kind of thing. So that's dukkha. Uh, that feeling, and that's actually why I emphasized at the beginning that um, to, to focus on contentment and that there's nothing lacking in this moment right here. That's a wonderful way to meditate because it means that you're saying no to dukkha. You're saying, what I have right now at this moment is enough. And if you can sustain that, that's freedom. Even when things in our lives are basically going well in high-option cultures like ours, We still actually create dukkha for ourselves. We drive ourselves in various ways. Here's a wonderful little section from Ajahn Suchito. Are you sure you're doing the right thing in your life? Maybe you're missing out on a really great opportunity somewhere else. Then these multiple options become a strain. Can you develop shamanism, play classical guitar, study ecology and cybernetics, have a successful, fulfilling relationship with your partner, your parents and relatives, and your children, come to a mature understanding of the political arena, grow your own organic food, and hold down a suitable job with the right kinds of people for the right ends all at the same time. If any of these go wrong, or if you miss out on a really fulfilling experience, you're likely to feel disappointed or personally to blame. So cram it in and hold on tight. Sound familiar? I mean, this isn't even, we're not even talking about illness and tragedy here. This is dukkha. (laughs) So 
It's just the dukkha of everyday life that we create by craving, by wanting things, by wanting the pleasant, by not wanting the unpleasant. And I think we, we're laughing, right? Because we all sense intuitively that this is impossible, right? We, we sort of know that, and yet we do it anyway. Uh, and you know, this, is, this is in the conventional way of, of that we usually live. And, and even if we think we did it, it probably would only last like 10 minutes, right? And then something would change. So we sort of have the sense that it's not really going to be there. It's, now, this is not an accident, and it's not some kind of personal failing to get your life together. This is the first noble truth, right there. This is dukkha. The first noble truth says, there is dukkha. It's built into ordinary human existence. So I hope this is getting your attention a little bit. Um, The Buddha was not teaching some kind of obscure philosophy that you have to learn Pali to really understand and um, go into great depths. He actually taught a path that's very practical and it's so profound that it reaches into the nitty-gritty of your life. So for a long time, we've believed that trying to fix and change things is the path to happiness. And a radical shift happens in our life when we begin to suspect that this isn't working and that there might be an alternative. So here's the really interesting part, which is that the Buddha found a way out of this struggle. And he didn't do it by just meditating on a mountaintop and never coming back down. Um, He was a real person who lived in the world. He walked around and taught people for 45 years. And he didn't suffer during that time. And how did he do that? He actually did it by examining dukkha very carefully. He was a master of dukkha. And we can learn more about dukkha too. So the teachings of the Buddha tell us the way to do that. The unsatisfactoriness that we feel in life comes about because of our reactivity to our experience. The problem is inside, not outside. So we can learn to let go of that reactivity. That's the process of the path. So let me say for a moment what dukkha is not, since... um, Suffering sounds so, such a powerful word. Dukkha is not unpleasant experience. If you don't get anything else out of this talk, remember that pain is not the same as suffering. So you can be in pain, physical or mental, of various kinds, and not suffer. The Buddha had unpleasant experience, even after his enlightenment. He had back pain, for example, as he got closer to his death. There were times when he, didn't, he chose not to give a Dharma talk because he was in too much pain. He said, I just can't do it. Would you do it for me, Ananda? He had people who didn't like him. Um, someone tried to kill him. Other people simply came to argue with him because they didn't like what he taught. So he wasn't universally loved. I hope that you're not thinking that's what the path will do for you. <laughs> so, but the Buddha didn't suffer. So these were unpleasant experiences, but he didn't suffer. So that's very interesting, right? We, we need to learn something to, to learn about that. Um, I actually learned this myself through years of chronic pain, that pain is not the same as suffering. And it's also true in any meditation session where you may have unpleasant experience arising, but you're able to see it with mindfulness, and so it becomes something that's not 
hurting you in the same way. This also means that the path is not about eliminating pain. It's actually about eliminating suffering, that sense of lack. So if you could live every moment of the rest of your life with no sense of lack, you wouldn't suffer, you'd be free. But it's that feeling that we keep generating. How do we keep generating that in ourselves? So the Buddha assigns a task to each of the Four Noble Truths. And I'll just briefly mention the Four Truths and the task for each one, even though we're mostly going to focus on the first. So Dukkha itself, that's the first Noble Truth, is to be understood. And the second Noble Truth, the origin of Dukkha, is to be abandoned. The third Noble Truth, which is the cessation of Dukkha, is to be realized. And the fourth noble truth, which is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha, is to be developed or cultivated. So we'll mostly talk about the first one tonight, but that doesn't mean that they go in order and that you have to like completely understand dukkha before you can get to the next one. Actually, nothing's really that linear in the Buddhist teachings, even though they're often presented in these lists. So actually, the understanding of all four truths develops simultaneously and kind of progressively deeper as the path goes along. So it's fair to ask why we're supposed to understand dukkha. Actually, the Buddha was brilliant. It turns out that the process of understanding dukkha contains the path itself. So the, pro- the things that you need to do to your mind in order to understand what it is that suffering is are going to be exactly the things that you need to develop in order to let go of suffering. So that's kind of handy, isn't it? It's actually a property of the mind that when it sees uh, where it's causing itself pain, it lets go. It's kind of nice. It's just how the mind works. It's built to free itself. And the only thing that gets in its way is us. We get in our own way. So there's a lovely story that's often told in Dharma talks, and I think I'm just going to add on to that tradition about a, a butterfly that's coming out of the chrysalis. And if you, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they kind of struggle at it. So like the chrysalis breaks a little bit, and you can just see it just starting to come out and kind of, you know, just a little bit of it. And it looks like a real struggle. And, you know, it's kind of... First you think, oh gosh, you know, this just split open a little bit. It's not going to be able to get out of that tiny little hole. And you can see it kind of... And it's so tempting to go over there and just like help it a little bit. Oh, you know, I could just like open that up. But it turns out if you do that, um, the the process of struggling out of the chrysalis, because they do get out. You see butterflies flying around. You know they get out. Um, That process biologically in the butterfly pumps fluid through the wings, which are newly formed. Caterpillars don't have wings, so it has these new wings. And that process starts pumping some fluids through them that they need in order to be able to fly. And if you go and break open the chrysalis and the thing just comes out, the, the, the wings never get any fluid in them. So you might guess that this is an analogy. <laughs> and <laughs> our process of understanding dukkha and all the struggle that we have to go through in practice is exactly the same thing, is that that's what enables the transformation that um, will allow us to spread our wings and be free. So our engagement with dukkha is not always easy. 
but the very challenge is what prepares the mind to transform. In the words of Andrea Fella, another teacher, turning towards suffering makes us more ethical, more reliable, more stable, and more noble. That's why this is a noble truth. It ennobles us. So understanding suffering means looking at it. It means turning toward it. Our usual response to suffering, I'm using suffering, by the way, but I've told you this is not exactly the right word, but I may use it now and then throughout this talk. In this case, it is relevant. So when you're in the dukkha mode of suffering, the usual response is to turn away, deny, um, push away, ignore, get lost, grasp for something pleasant instead, anything but just looking at it. Um, Maybe you've seen some of these patterns in your own mind. So the Buddha says, just stop all that and take a look in order to understand what you're seeing. Accept that what is happening is dukkha. And right there, you've created some space. You've allowed your mind to look at the suffering and not not be lost in it. And then you'll naturally learn something about it at an intuitive level. So understanding dukkha doesn't necessarily mean that we read a book about it and that we really, you know, think about it, it's more like we're understanding at a heart level. We're starting to get, internalize what it is that's causing this dissatisfaction and then we can start to let go of those things. So there's a lovely quote in a book by Analio uh, that says, developing an understanding of the first noble truth involves not so much the revelation that dukkha exists as the realization of what dukkha is. And I like that because we all know that dukkha exists. Does anybody not know that by now? And yet, we don't really understand the first noble truth because we don't understand all the little ways that it exists. So we may read the newspaper and say, oh gosh, yes, boy, you can read about the suffering every day or you can feel it in your own body or mind, but we don't necessarily get the subtler forms um, that we're participating in and the path slowly flushes all of those out in order for us to free the mind at deeper and deeper levels. So in all cases, the dukkha is in our mind's reaction, reaction, reactivity. So that's a really crucial point. It's not the objects that cause suffering, but the way that we relate to them. It's the craving, the clinging, the avoiding, the rejecting, the identification, or the selfing that is the real suffering. That's actually the second noble truth that arises out of understanding the first. First, It's the mind that's the key to suffering and its end. So that's another radical shift in our life when we gain the ability to look at dukkha and really turn toward it and see it with mindfulness. Um, That's a very different thing than most people do their whole lives. So the fact that you've had 10 moments of mindfulness in this meditation That's great. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's only 10. You're doing something really powerful and important that most people don't do. So I hope you can have some appreciation of what you've done this evening already just sitting here. So I want to spend some time talking about approaches to understanding dukkha because that's the task for us. And there's lots and lots of them, and so I obviously can't name them all. And I hope very much that you've discovered some of your own, and maybe can, you know, I'm sure you have some that are individual for you. 
So I think what, I'm, what I'd like to do is offer three specific practical ways to approach the understanding of dukkha, and then to back off from those and talk about two general kind of overarching approaches to understanding dukkha that I think contain all of the specific ones, just as the kind of overview of the next section. So here are the specific ones. The first one is to ground in the body. That's kind of like a first step towards being able to turn towards suffering. Many types of suffering bring with them some type of physical discomfort. So a tightening or a heat or some kind of contraction in the body. And this can be, um, this can be sometimes challenging for people to tune into or sometimes it's really obvious like, oh wow, you know, that anger really feels like a burning in my gut. But basically, what this does is it uh, quells the mind's tendency to fix, change, adjust. If you can ground yourself in the body, which is always in the present moment, you've reduced by sort of a degree of separation the mind's tendency to grab onto what it's doing and, uh, and grasp and make things worse for itself. This is also interesting in light of what it says in the suttas, which often describe things in very um, graphic physical images. So, for example, um, anger is described as swallowing a hot, an hot iron ball, a red-hot iron ball. And so, you know, you can read that in the sutta and think, oh, that's very nice. Um, what a colorful image. The Buddha sure was a good poet. Uh, or you can actually examine this in your experience and say, oh my goodness, you know, that really is true. Um, and so then that gets you curious, right? And you say, well, what about these other things that I haven't experienced? And this provides kind of a deepening of our understanding of the readings that the Buddha offers us and a deepening of our own experience. So I recommend that as a way to explore what dukkha really is. The second specific approach is to begin to understand dukkha in relation to our understanding of time. And I know that sounds a little abstract, but what I'm pointing towards is that dukkha only occurs in the present moment. It's always a present moment experience. So we may be remembering something painful that happened to us yesterday or last week, but that's happening now. Or we may be imagining something that might happen to us tomorrow, and we're worried about it, but that imagination is happening now. And so that gives us, starts to give us a clue into the uh, dependently arisen nature of dukkha. And that's another big word, but essentially it says that dukkha doesn't arise randomly, and it doesn't arise for no reason. It arises because of a cluster of causes and conditions that are there, and we can discern them. And then we can say, oh, that's why this is happening. It's happening right now, and it's happening because of what came right before it. So, for example, you're sitting in meditation, you're feeling reasonably calm, you're not experiencing a lot of suffering. You know, we don't experience huge amounts of dukkha every moment, <laughs> believe it or not. So, you know, you're sitting there, you're having okay, and then this thought arises that says, did I turn off the stove before I came here? And then you start thinking, oh no, I bet I left it on, and I bet my house has burned down in the meantime, and that's going to really put a damper in my day. 
And so, you know, then you go off on this whole anxiety thing. Oh, you know, this is really bad. I can't believe I was so stupid. Oh, no. And then, you know, so you can do that. You can be lost in that for a long time. Or you can say, now, wait a minute. What I'm really doing is I'm sitting right here in the meditation hall. All this dukkha is happening right here in this moment. And it's happening because that thought arose. And then I grabbed onto it and started thinking. Um, And so you start to say, wait a minute. So, you know, you, you can kind of get the picture of how this dukkha is being formed. And that's not to say that because you realize that, you're going to stop worrying about it. And it's probably a good idea to go home and check your stove if you're really worried about it. But, you know, you, you can get a clue that maybe some of the other dukkha you experience also is happening because there were causes and conditions that came together and brought it there for you. And... Uh, if you're mindful, you can catch those happening and not be sucked in quite as easily the next time, or maybe you'll, you know, you'll catch it faster. So I think this is a very effective way to approach dukkha, is to notice what's happening in the present and how it arises. And then the third specific approach is to begin to see experience in a, through a particular lens. I have to describe the lens a little bit, but... It's called seeing your experience through the five aggregates, and specifically the arising and the passing of these five aggregates. Now, what does that mean? So, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. The Buddha actually provides further help on what the definition of dukkha is. Remember at the beginning I gave that long thing, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair... After that, there's the classic, that's a classic rendering, and then after that, there's kind of a summary phrase. And it always says the same thing. It says, in short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. Hmm. Or the five clinging aggregates, as it's sometimes translated. So what does that mean? What is an aggregate, anyway? Um, Don't worry about the origin of the word aggregate. It just means sort of a cluster of things that we can group into one category. But basically, these are the components of our life. They're everything that's experienced. So you imagine everything that you experience, sights, sounds, tastes, touches, smells, um, and thoughts. So basically, everything that comes in through your senses, that's the experience of your world. And you could divide it up a number of ways. But these five particular aggregates or clusters of things is a pretty good way. And it happens to be comprehensive. So here, here are the five. The first is called form which is basically just the physicality of experience. It's the external things that we experience physically, and it's our body, the physical part of experience, called rupa in Pali. And then the second aggregate is called feeling, which doesn't necessarily mean emotions. It means the fact that the things we experience are pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Pretty simple. It's just like the sort of the flavor or the tone of what comes in. And... That's sort of the the second grouping. And then the third is perception, which is the label that we put on experience that comes in. So, um, and it's not inherent to the object, it's the label that we put on in our mind. Like this um, is a bell, that's what I used it for tonight, but it's also kind of a bowl, or um, a helmet for a dog, you know, something (laughs) like that. So... You know, the perce- it's not inherent to this object, but the perception is what we would label this as. And that's another sort of category of how we experience things. 
And then the third is uh, the fourth is kind of a broad category that's usually translated as mental formations or volitional formations. Don't worry about what that really means. It's um, emotions, thoughts, intentions, other things that stories that we create, habits of the mind, other things that our mind does besides those very simple ones of the feeling tone and the perception and the fifth one, which I'll get to in a second. So it's kind of like all the mental activity that we go through. And then the fifth aggregate is consciousness, which is the knowing of experience. So that's it. There's the physical part. There's the feeling tone of it. There's the perception of what we think it is. There's the story about it, the sort of cluster of associations that go with it. And there's the knowing of it, the awareness of it. There's nothing that can not fall into one of those five categories. So in case we needed a recap, rearranging, holding on to, and trying to control these five aspects of existence is the conventional strategy. It will never work. (laughs) It's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So it's seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. So why is that? Um, It's because all experience has, what? Three characteristics. That's what this series is about. And I'm not saying this because you need to memorize it or you need to believe it, um, or, you know, the Buddha told us, so that's how it is, or this is our opinion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really true, and, you, and it's something that can only be experienced. Um, you should figure it out for yourself, um, because that's the only way you're going to believe it. So I'm not asking you to believe this. But all of these five aggregates are impermanent, as Drew talked about last week. They all have the quality of being unsatisfactory, so that's the dukkha, and they are not an essential self. Now, in a sense, you might sort of be able to say that abstractly, oh, of course, you know, I'm not the same as my feelings, and they change all the time. I mean, even if you look at yourself as a whole person, you're not who you were last year, much less 40 years ago, right? So there's this concept of an essential self that we believe in so dearly is a little questionable, And we'll hear more about that next week. But the challenge that we have is that we tend to grab onto these five aggregates, as they're called, or these five types of experience as being permanent, satisfactory, or a quality of our essential self. So the more but the more we look at them, the more we see that the problem comes that we're trusting the aggregates beyond what they can deliver. They aren't these things, they can't deliver any of those things for us. They're not a suitable refuge. So there's a point on the path where we directly experience the fundamentally impermanent nature of these five aggregates. We all agree with this at the top level. We can say, oh yeah, yeah, I know, things arise and pass. But seeing it in meditation is a whole different thing. It irreversibly changes our understanding of them in a certain way. So basically, we become disenchanted with these items when that happens, and we start saying, hmm, and and that's not um, a depressing thing. People sometimes don't like the word disenchantment, but if you think about enchantment, what that means is you've had a spell cast on you, and you are in la-la land believing that this is all great, and everything is going to be permanent and make me happy and is all about me. 
um, but actually um, being disenchanted is to see things as they are. And it's much more realistic, it's much more in tune with the truth, it's natural, and it's the path to freedom to see things that way. So at that point we become dispassionate about seeking pleasure and avoiding pain and we look for something more reliable. So these three specific things that I talked about, grounding in the body, seeing the causes of dukkha in time and the fact that it only occurs in the present moment, and beginning to see experiences in, in terms of these five aggregates, these five categories and how they arise and pass, can sound rather complex. It's like, oh my gosh, I, now everything that comes in, I have to put a, one of these five labels on it and I have to think about what caused it and I have to notice where it is in my body and you're going to make your meditation into a massive engineering project. <laughs> That's definitely not the point. <laughs> meditation is very simple and all of this arises at an intuitive level of understanding. You don't have to be read a lot, you don't have to know a lot, you just have to look a lot. <laughs> and it will come in and you'll get it at an intuitive level. So the, the reason I'm telling you that is I want to step back now from the specific approaches that people have for understanding dukkha and talk about the kind of general overarching approaches that I think are going on as we understand dukkha. It's actually pretty simple. Now, they, the two things I'm going to tell you sound contradictory, but they're not. They actually happen together. And that's the great thing about the path is you get all these things that sound like they can't be true at the same time and your mind goes, buh. And then eventually you realize that that's really how it is. So the first approach is in a certain sense that we have to accept dukkha. So that's what I talked about early on, turning towards it agreeing that it's something that we're going to look at, that it's worth paying attention to and understanding. So in some way, um, we start to see how it's part of everything. We start even looking for it. Okay, you know, where's the unsatisfactoriness in this experience? Um, So we really accept that there is dukkha. A lot of people don't accept the first noble truth, but there there is dukkha, and it's in a lot of things. So it's important for us to have that basic acceptance before we can really start to dig in. But then the second approach is not accepting dukkha. And this is equally important because what happens when we really accept dukkha and take it in and accept that it's part of everything is that we start to see our role in it. So we see our own contribution. Basically, it's wanting things to be other than they are. That's it. (laughs) And so that's the cause. And we start to wonder, how long am I going to keep doing this? How much more am I going to tolerate my mind creating this? At some point, it's enough. Enough suffering. There must be a way out. So when we're really ready, and when we've accepted dukkha to the point where we can't accept it anymore, then the mind gets ready to let go. And we actually let go all along the path in many, many different ways. So we let go 
at the traffic light when it's red and we really want to get where we are and we re- we're going and we realize that we're frustrated and getting hotter and hotter under the collar. And then at some point we say, wait a minute, nobody's making me be this way. I'm being this way. So we've accepted dukkha and then we say no more. <laughs> and then we relax. Oh, oh, I can just let go. So I'll be five minutes later. Maybe I won't. Maybe the next five traffic lights will all be green and I'll get there on time. So by not accepting dukkha anymore, we can let go. And then we can maybe at some point start to let go of bigger things, like um, the anger we've been carrying at our, at our parents for 40 years. <laughs> Who's making you hold on to that? So each of these things that we let go of brings peace and happiness in proportion to how tightly we were holding on to it. Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So at some point, we are ready to let go of everything and seek the deathless. So that's the gate of dukkha. I would definitely be remiss at this point not to kind of go all the way and describe the um, complete potential of understanding dukkha. And I'll do it as well as I can um, in that some of it is outside of my experience. So it's said that there are three gates to the deathless, to liberation, you can guess what they are. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, not self. Those are the three main sort of core part of this talk series. So as the mind moves toward liberation, one of these three characteristics becomes prominent to it. That's how the process works. And one of these gateways is dukkha. So how is dukkha a gateway to liberation? You don't have to worry about which gate you're going to go through, by the way. It's said that you don't have a choice. (laughs) So your mind is already marked to go through one. You just don't know what it's going to be. (laughs) So some of us get the gate of dukkha. (laughs) And that's okay. So I think there are actually a few routes that the mind can take to um, use the gate of dukkha to free itself. And I'll just describe a couple of them. Here's a couple options. The most common way is to realize, go through the gate of dukkha through understanding impermanence first, through anicca. So by continually observing the rise and fall of the five aggregates, as I described earlier, the five qualities of experience, watch those arise and pass, arise and pass, and eventually just pass. we become to understand the truth that everything is changing and therefore nothing is satisfactory. All experience takes on a quality that's called unbearability. And the mind, the, the image for this is quite beautiful. Actually, it's of a lotus that rejects all water that comes onto it. And pretty soon the mind gets so, it's, it's not going to pick up anything that hurts. No, not that, not that, not that. 
no, 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 and eventually um, nothing can stick and the mind goes through the gate and enters the deathless. There's nothing whatsoever worth clinging to. This is actually one of the last things the Buddha said. It's very important. He's pointing to the gate of dukkha. So an alternative route through this gate is to, uh, that I, I think is very interesting, is to realize that dukkha is the central aspect between anicca and anatta. And I, I heard this in a wonderful talk by John Peacock about a month ago, where he said, he said this phrase, he said, it is because we don't perceive things as impermanent and not self that we perceive them as dukkha. So that's interesting, isn't it? Dukkha is a misperception So seeing through this misperception leads to Nibbana. I think that's really interesting because, you know, I had a question early on that there are these three characteristics of experience. Every experience is anicca, dukkha, and anatta. It's like, well, so then I'm going to experience suffering every moment of my life, and the more aware I become, the more I'm going to realize how much everything is suffering. What does it mean? That, what do you experience if you're not experiencing suffering then? And the answer is you experience anicca and anatta. And so you, um, you don't perceive the dukkha anymore because you fully understand anicca and anatta, which none of us, I don't know, but not so many of us do. So that's the task, is to kind of let go of that central characteristic and see that it's not really what it seems to be. So we cannot not experience the dukkha then. So more and more the path of practice that we're on becomes an act of letting go of the clinging that we have in the myriad ways that we're doing it again and again. We're going to live with dukkha as embodied beings. So we can actually make dukkha our constant companion on the journey. And in that way, dukkha becomes a continual gateway, moment by moment. You know, probably by using this term, gates of liberation, you have this image in your mind of like the gates of heaven, you know, and they rise up before you, these big golden things, and then they open and you go through, you know. But actually, you know, every moment, every moment we can see passing away, arising, unsatisfactory, not me, So dukkha is a continual gateway from moment to moment. And far from being something depressing or something to avoid, it's actually um, our friend on the path. So we may begin with the personal suffering in our lives. It's a fine place to begin, the practical dukkha that we all have. But the process of release from suffering is ultimately impersonal. When the mind sees the disadvantage of something with clarity and insight, it lets go. I said that early on. That's a quality of the mind. It just does. So we create the conditions for this natural process to occur. How do we create those conditions? Purifying our actions, stilling the mind, and observing carefully. So we're all standing at the gate every moment. Does anyone here not perceive unsatisfactoriness? So we can awaken each moment that we touch this very 
human suffering that we have with a heart that's open and compassionate and curious. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.